Good morning, church. Go ahead and have a seat this morning. And I uh, want to welcome you in who are joining us live stream this morning from different places. And um, kids are making their way to the back. They've already got the drill down and know what's up. Um, I um, am so glad to be here today. I can see some, um, not new faces, but um, newly or freshly returned folks. Um, and maybe it's because soup and bread, the, the word got out. <laughs> Today is a great uh, annual celebration. I've, uh, I've enjoyed 29 of them uh, with my family where we gather annually and we do something that's uh, harder and harder to do in this world. We want bigger and faster and more complex and more uh, more, more, more. And soup and bread decidedly reverses all of that and says, let's just get back to, I think of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, this is not my sermon this morning, but verses 16 to 18 that are great verses if you want to memorize them. You can do it right now with me. Rejoice always. Say it with me. Pray without ceasing. So you're, those are two verses already, 16 and 17. Verse 18 is a little tougher. In everything give thanks. So you got three verses down, baby, down. And, and they're really good uh, in everything, not for everything. You notice it says that? In everything. Because uh, there's some things that I just am not really happy about. And you are too, right? Don't get grumpy on me or teary or anything right now. But it's true. There are some things that just don't fit. Don't, I don't like them. They're a result of something that happened in a garden a long time ago. And they're still with us, right? But somehow the Holy Spirit says you can find in everything a reason to give thanks. So um, that means a lot. And um, it means a lot to us and our family these days. I'm always asked uh, what's the update or what's the latest. And I will just tell you a very magical uh, trip we took on Friday. Some of you already know it. But uh, if you're from Oregon or you um, were from Oregon and you know the layout here, um, about 18 miles exactly from the coast is a um, on Highway 26. It's a beautiful uh, drive. It's two hours from Portland to the coast, roughly, unless you're in a Corvette or something fast. But um, and uh, Mile 18 is also known as Camp 18, and it's a lumber camp. And I'm just fascinated by lumber. Those were the last real men, in my opinion. But I wanted to be a my, I am a lumberman in my heart. So uh, anyway, um, there's this beautiful outdoor museum and there's a wonderful restaurant. Am I giving them a plug or what? They, they got, they've got cinnamon rolls. Yeah, thank you right there. Jim, show your hands. They're that big. They're exactly that big. Pick the biggest family you know and one cinnamon roll will work for them. All right. And so I decided... Um, if my wife would join me, I would love to drive out there with her. And uh, she's beginning, her numbers are starting to decline as predicted. And uh, the next two or three weeks are very challenging ahead for us. And I thought, well, she still has energy and you're watching and I love you, Debbie. And um, we, we just said, let's go and let's get dad. And so I reached out to my dad. And so dad and Debbie are uh, agreeable to go to the coast. And we went to Camp 18 and it's a, it's a wonderful feast, and we did bring home a cinnamon roll because we had no room for it 
after eating there. And, um, and here's the grabber. Personally, they were awake the whole time. Both of them. And I'll just say what some of you are thinking. It's probably your driving, Pastor Steve. But <laughs> that might be true. That might be true. Anyway, it was really fun. Um, I was thinking about Mary in my prayer this morning, the mother of Jesus. And um, <clears throat> let me broaden that a little bit. And I would say this of Jesus Christ. The way he treated people uh, really has always, not just is, but has always been the gold standard. You think about some people, some, some situations that we sometimes think of. Ask, ask the poor. Ask the broken. Ask the judged. The sinful. I mean, I could mention others. The oppressed. And even ask someone that doesn't feel very loved. Uh, how they wish people would see them. Saw a commercial uh, about some athlete, and he was holding his baby, a brand new baby boy. And the tagline was something like, I, I hope the world comes to see you as I do. What a cool thing, right? But ask any of those other people how they wish the world around them would see them. And if they know anything at all about the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're very likely to say, I would love for the world to see me just like Jesus. Wouldn't that be a great world to live in? Wouldn't that be really amazing? So in his book, Jesus, uh, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey, who I've said for years is one of my favorite authors, I have no hesitation uh, recommending any book he's ever written. And even when he doesn't have it all down, he'll admit it and say, no, I don't quite have this all wired, but here's what I'm thinking. Anyway, in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he writes it as a mature walk, uh, follower of Jesus, and he says, um, he states a searching truth, I think. Jesus was the friend of sinners, right, Yancey? They liked being around him, and they actually longed for his company. And Yancey then spins it on a question. What was Jesus' secret that we seem to have lost? Now, um, Maybe not everyone has lost it. In fact, I'm looking at a whole sea of faces right now, and, and I want to be around you. Not as much as Jesus, but I really do like you. I really love you. And, I, and there are many of you that will write me, and we, we have this like online community now. And it's true out there, too. And I, I um, uh, but, um, when I say we want, we want to be the kind of people that, that people want to be around, like Jesus was, um, I want you to imagine this, who could forget this extreme scene that Jesus handled with such grace. It's not hard to imagine, so picture this room that we're in. 
And there's a middle aisle and some side aisles and side doors and such, right? And uh, the story is told in the fourth gospel. Don't, don't turn that. I just want to capture it quickly to make a point. Fourth gospel, John, chapter 8 of his gospel, when um, this scene unfolds when the con- conduct cops, which are known as Pharisees in the day, they're the conduct cops. They have it down about you. They've got a lot of detail. And, and, uh, and, and they bring somebody, it turns out it's a woman, into the gathering. And the text makes a point of saying they brought this woman before him caught in the very act of adultery. It just makes you want to wince, right? Like TMI, we would say in our world today. Do I need to know that detail? Evidently, the Holy Spirit wants you to know it so you're bothered by it, like I am. They bring her into this gathering, and um, she has been caught and accused of adultery. They have videotape, if I may say. And it was a crime that was punishable, in case you didn't know, by the death penalty. This is not a shame moment. Way bigger than that. What would Jesus do? They wondered. Hoping to trap him, actually, in a conflict between, well, morality and mercy. And um, he didn't fall for their trap. He didn't. Uh, Instead, he said to her accusers, as she stood or maybe sort of hid behind him as much as she could, Uh, if any of you, presumably the ones that brought her in, is without sin, then let's get this thing going. Let him be the first to throw a stone and carry out the prescribed execution. Then after a while, all of them had filed out. And Jesus turned to the cringing woman. And he asked uh, a couple of questions. Uh, Where are they? Has, Has no one condemned you? And then he asked, well, actually said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Uh, Scenes like that leave little wonder at all why women found the company of Jesus so incredibly safe. Uh, If asked, how would you like people to treat you as a woman? A ready answer has always been, just like Jesus. Uh, That'd be okay with me. Um, Philip Yancey has noted this as well, about the day in which the Gospels were written, in which Jesus lived on this earth. I'm quoting, Jesus' attitude toward women was 
revolutionary. It was not just uh, forward-looking or progressive. It was ridiculously revolutionary. He goes on to some details. Indeed, in those days at every synagogue service, Jewish men prayed, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. I know your chuckle is, uh, there's some, it's absurd, right? He's not done, he's just getting started. Women sat in a separate section, were not even counted in quorums, and rarely taught the Torah. Not sure the fear there, but they weren't. In social life, few women talked to men outside of their families, and a woman was to touch no man but her spouse. Which means when we hug on Sunday morning, we're in a bad place if it's first century. And you're a woman hugging someone other than your husband. Uh, yet Jesus associated freely with women and taught some as his disciples. A Samaritan woman who had been through five husbands, that story's in John 4, uh, <clears throat> Jesus actually tapped to lead a spiritual revival. Remember Samaria? Changed her life and said, hey, you've got a story to tell. I want you to be the leader of this effort. And she followed through. A prostitute's anointing, Jesus accepted with gratitude. Women traveled with his band of followers, no doubt stirred up much gossip. Psst. And you seen he, who he hangs out with? Some of them are women. Some of them are women none of us should hang out with. That, that kind of chat. Women populated Jesus' parables and illustrations, and frequently he did miracles on their behalf. Indeed, according to biblical scholar Walter Wink, is that a perfect stage name or what? <laughs> um, Jesus violated the mores of his time in every single encounter with women recorded in the four Gospels, end quote. Another observer of Jesus has said, it's no wonder that the women were first at the cross and last, uh, excuse me, first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man and they had never, they had never, there had never been such another as Jesus. Those words got me thinking in preparation for this message this morning about women in the Bible who've played a prominent role. Uh, <clears throat> turns out there are a lot of them. Uh, it was not a short list at all. It's a, a, a bunch. Uh, like lists of prominent men that we could make and should make, um, this is an honest mix of both virtue and vice. These are not just women that made the cut to be talked about in a gathering like this because they're such uh, amazing, exemplary people. They're just like men. There's a mix. 
uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, we could say, let me just give you a couple on my list that I thought of. And I, I kind of did it chrono chronologically. Th so you don't have to go past Genesis 2 to come to the first woman that grabbed my attention, Eve. Okay, that was an easy one because she's the first female. She's a lot of firsts. First female, first wife, first mother, and one more first. First sinner. See what I said? Virtue. She's the first woman, first, first wife, first mother, and first sinner. Okay. Now, Adam followed quickly. <laughs> he, he liked that um, direction anyway. So the next one comes to mind is Sarah. A little bit later. Same book, Genesis, at the beginning. And uh, she's Abraham's wife. Uh, he was a big deal. She also was a big deal. Uh, she was mother. She was a mother at 90. So that changes a lot, right? You just can take that in. And first woman, by the way, listed in that uh, spiritual hall of fame that we talked about last week in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11 is her story, Sarah. Then we come from Sarah to Rahab. Uh, her name appears, of course, in the book of Judges or Joshua, and Rahab actually was a great risk taker. She actually hid a couple of spies and saved their lives. She came into Jericho to check it out and uh, assess the strategy for taking this city, and, and etc. Um, she's in the spiritual hall of fame as well. Another woman there, uh, uh, Rahab was. Uh, verse 31 in Hebrews chapter 11. And um, let's see, what else can I say? Oh, she's commended for her great faith. And I don't know too many people that can say this, but she's commended for being in the lineage of Jesus. And the Bible does not hide one ounce of what I'm going to tell you next. Rahab, the harlot. A noted prostitute. We come from there to Hannah. And um, there's a place in Israel that a bunch of us were at a couple of years ago. And it was a wonderful, Shiloh was a, um, a, a place that her name's associated with. And she was childless. She stands as a uh, sort of a, an icon of strength and perseverance when uh, for for uh, infertile, we would say today, infertile couples, infertile women. And uh, Hannah was this uh, uh, persevering woman, wanted a baby, uh, was, un was, was unable to have a baby. And, um, and God said, you know what, um, I'm going to answer your prayer. In fact, she stands out as somebody that's a go-to example of persevering in prayer, Hannah was. And she became a mom a year later, and her son, really amazing standout guy. He's got two books in the Bible named after him, Samuel. Pretty cool stuff, right? I mean, this list could go on and on. I get to the Marys, and I, it's a whole list of Marys, right? I mean, you and I think of Mother of Jesus, and, um, and rightly so. She stands at the top of that list. Uh, she 
birthed God into our world as a human. And then, and then you come to another Mary whose brother Lazarus was the one Jesus raised from the dead in John 11. And she also had a sister named Martha. And Mary and Martha are showcased in uh, Luke 10. And um, there's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, there's a, there's uh, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus there. Well, that same Mary was also at the feet of Jesus clear near the end of the gospel in Matthew 26. And she's the one anointing Jesus. Preparing him for burial, still seated at his feet. That brings me to Mary Magdalene. Um, I read something that said she's the most talked about Mary in the Bible. I don't know, I thought his mother was more talked about, but still, she's a real standout. And we know this about her. She had seven demons. She was a very conflicted uh, person, had a real spiritual struggle. And Jesus cast out those demons, all seven of them. And no surprise that Mary Magdalene was, was one that, that actually was at the crucifixion and days later at the resurrection of Jesus. That's kind of my list. Oh, there's one more. It takes you into Acts. Um, Lydia, do you know that name? She was actually a very successful businesswoman. And uh, that has relevance for this reason in Acts 16, she was the first European convert. So the gospel went from Middle East, Israel, and it spread out, and it went west, and the city of Philippi is somewhat west and north, and she lived there and bowed her knee to Jesus and the gospel that's presented to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And get this, she became the ardent, I would say, supporter of the first two missionaries. She had a heart for getting that news further out than even Philippi, those missionaries, Paul and Silas. It's amazing. So this morning, I want us to stop off for a thoughtful consideration, um, just for a few moments, uh, in Judges chapter 4. Um, there's a consideration of not one, but two women uh, in the story of Judges chapter 4. So turn there if you would. Just last week I mentioned, uh, actually we looked in detail at the four uh, judges that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, they are Gideon, Barak, or Barak, uh, Samson, and Jephthah. I said of Barak that he's almost never mentioned apart from the only female judge, which is Deborah. And... Um, and she's the one I want us to think about. So Judges chapter 4, um, let's just say a couple of things that are fairly standout-ish. One is that Deborah as a judge was part of an esteemed group of people. There were 12 of them in total. And she's the only female judge, which means she's unique among them. Not only as the only, um, she, she's a judge, which says a lot about you. But she's a female judge. And that fact gets a little more colorful when you realize that in the 12th century B.C., that was unheard of. It was a very man's world in those days. Uh, but she stands out, um, Deborah, 
Um, not just because she's got a great name. Um, but she played a very amazing role. Uh, in this day, uh, which was very dark and very difficult in Israel's history. Uh, as, as with other seasons of struggle that are captured, 325 years of them in the book of Judges, Israel had rebelled against God and then was overrun or overcome by her enemies and then delivered by God-fearing rescuer after God-fearing rescuer. That went on 12 times, 12 different rescues. Uh, the spiritual mood at the time of, of Deborah is described, so we don't have to guess it. Verse 1, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud, the previous deliverer, was dead. So the habit was when a deliverer came, he kicked out, vanquished the enemy, and there was calm and peace and prosperity for the season of time until that judge died. In this case, Ehud died and all heck broke loose. Verse 2, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin. Please don't see that as a financial transaction. Turn them over. He uh, may be a little bit out of the Romans 1 idea. Look, you want it that way? You, you don't want me in the program? Okay, see how that works for you. That's the spirit of verse 2. Sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, was based in Heresheth Hogaim. You owe me a latte for pronouncing that correctly. Okay? Um, which is, just think of uh, Mount Carmel where Elijah the prophet hung out. That's the same location, very nearby, um, local call. All right? Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, so they cried out to the Lord for help. Let me just say it, what you're thinking. That was a heck of a long time. A harsh beatdown these people were living with. 20 years, two decades of this King Jabin and his Sisera commander that had all these chariots and military men under his command. You talk about good words to describe it. Verse 3 says, he had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Cruelly oppressed. Put those together in any context and you go, that is not where I want to live. Um, and so God in that setting taps next, verse 4, Deborah. A prophet, the wife of Labadoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel. So it's way down south, just outside of Jerusalem that we're talking about, in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to Deborah to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinom, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, this is way up north of Galilee, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, northern tribes, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. 
I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. All right. Remember last week uh, we discussed the fact that Barak had a real hesitation. He was really hung up over the assignment to do what we just read. And, and, and so hung up was he that he refused to do his part of delivering uh, God's people without the promise of Deborah. Verse 8 says so. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. If you don't, I won't. Hmm. You get it? So it's just one verse that says, my watch broke. So anyway, um, here we go. Means I can preach longer. Here we go. All right, let's get going. All right. Um, so <clears throat> here's the deal. His reasons were likely a mix of reasons. They were reasons that said uh, probably some fear there. And probably on the positive side, he realized, I need to stay close to her for a reason. She's got game, we would say today. She's solid as a rock. How else do you read words like verse 4? She held court. That means she's smart. Judges are supposed to be those, those impartial people, the first Kings 3 idea, the wisdom of Solomon. Well, here's Deborah. She had that. So he says, no, I'm not going to go. Maybe my knees are knocking a bit, but I need you. You're, you're, I've got brute on my side. You've got, you've got wisdom and depth and character, and I need that if I'm going to go forward with confidence. That's my assessment of why we hold back. So Deborah gives the go signal. If you look down at verse, uh, what is it, 14. Deborah said to Barak, go. This day is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So he went down to Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord, look at this, routed Sisera and all his chariots and armor by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. So Barak advances and routs him. Uh, it's the same word in Hebrew, by the way. Remember when the Egyptians went into the Red Sea chasing the Israelites? And it says that they were routed that day. It's, it's they, were con they were thrown into great confusion. This is happening to Jabin and his, his, his people uh, under Sisera and his soldiers under his command. That's what's going on here. But we're told in verse 15 that Sisera runs for his life, fleeing as far and as fast as he could from the, from the battleground we're looking at before collapsing in utter exhaustion. Uh, at which time a relatively sec uh, unknown second woman steps onto the scene, Jael, J-A-E-L. And she invites the army commander, Sisera, to take cover in his tent. He probably staggered up toward his her tent, and it unfolds in a way that I, I want you to see it and take it in. Um, there is a warning, a caveat I need to give you. This is gruesome reading. Verse 18. Jael went to meet Sisera and said to him, 
Come, my Lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk, likely goat milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told Gail. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, just say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he was laying fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the tent peg through his temple into the ground. (laughs) And he died. Every so often you see words in the Bible that don't need to be there. I don't know a lot of people that get a tent peg through their temple and live, right? So he died. Hold on, we're not done. Then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, he said, she said. I will show you the, the man you're looking for. Pretty sure he's still there. <laughs> So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. Again, the the word's not necessary, but verse 23. And on that day God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. What do you say about this? I can't believe I read that in church. (laughs) There's some other scriptures I promised the Lord I would never read. I know they're in his Bible, but I can't talk about them. But um, this this was not on that list. Um, Well, we could say um, (laughs) she made her point, right? (laughs) Um, No doubt. (laughs) No doubt. Two standout women, right? My title today is Women Used Greatly by God. These two were used greatly by God, Deborah and Jael. Um, And they lived, by the way, 3,200 years ago. Did you catch that? Long time ago. So the pastor in me, the shepherd in me wants to say, okay, so ladies, listen up. And what's coming next is some form of an application. So based on this story, here's the application. Uh, Got a hammer? (laughs) Know how to use it? I don't know. Weird things happen to me sometimes when I'm preparing a message. I started singing the song. I got a hammer. I'll hammer in the morning. I'll hammer in the evening. All over this land. That would make you a mass murderer, right, if you did it like, like we're reading about. Some of you are going, wow, Pastor, you're way out today. <laughs> okay. Let's just call it a little violence humor, okay? So um, here's my exact prayer. God, what's the clear application of such a story? That's what I asked the Lord. And he gave me an answer. I'm thirsty. (laughs) 
Remember the last prominent woman? I, uh, the, it, was a, it wasn't the last, it was um, second, uh, second or third on, no, second on the list, Sarah. Remember her? I mentioned her a moment ago. Um, <coughs> I, I, I thought of Sarah. Uh, she was on my list, of course, and she's in Hebrews 11. That makes her a real standout in another way. Um, another place Sarah's mentioned in the Bible is in the New Testament by the Apostle Peter. And it's in 1 Peter chapter 3, and it's really important. At least, let's have everybody, not just ladies. Let's all turn to 1 Peter 3, and it's really an important um, place to land for the rest of this, uh, really, application. That's where we're at right now, Okay. 1 Peter chapter 3. And you'll know if you're a student of Peter, but if not, I can tell you this. We come to a place in his letter, first of two letters. Chapter 3 is counsel uh, given by Peter uh, about marriage. And Peter has in mind not a beautiful, holy, harmonious husband-wife relationship. If you want that kind of counsel, go to Ephesians chapter 5. There is a passage that gives you the vision of what it can be. But 1 Peter 3 is just the opposite. He's describing a conflicted, contentious marriage, listen now, where a wife is in a marriage whose husband does not walk with God. This important, this detail's important. We're not sure whether he's not a Christian or whether he is a Christian and just not living it. But whoever he is, he's not fun to live with. Um, Before I continue, I want you to hear me clearly. Peter is not describing an abusive, violent, or dangerous marriage. You're not hearing me uh, now, and I'll remind you again in a moment, that this counsel is for women in such a marriage. That is not the counsel the Bible gives. Um, And... In such cases where you're in a marriage or you know somebody in a, mar- in a marriage where it's abusive or violent or, or a dangerous marriage, don't follow this advice. That's not what's being said here. Let me go a step further because I know in such marriages, um, it's so traumatic that it's difficult to even know what you're in. Okay? So if you... Uh, are unsure about whether you're in an abusive, violent, or dangerous relationship. If you're unsure, call me, text me, stop me, and say, I need your help. And you will have somebody with great compassion and, and nearby resources to help you in that situation. Because in that situation, your, listen to me now, Your safety is paramount. So, 
I stand ready to help. But if your marriage is more like the, pe- the one Peter's describing, a challenging marriage, a difficult marriage, um, a stretching marriage, and boy, do I know I'm involved in a lot of them over the years. Um, then this counsel's for you. Of course, if you're in any of those kinds of marriages, a stretching, challenging, difficult marriage, our world's got its own counsel for you. You know that. It's, it's, it's actually simpler. It doesn't take lo- as long to listen to a message. Get out. That's what our world would say. It's, it's lost its thrill. Get out. Divorce. Oh, here's one. Get a hammer. Right? Why not? Um, but in startling contrast, God's counsel um, involves things of the Holy Spirit. A humble walk with God. If you're in that kind of marriage, difficult, stretching, challenging. A humble walk with God. Gentleness. Quietness. Purity. Inner beauty. These are his words. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior that you're practicing of you, your wife. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of the inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of, notice, great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give away, give way to fear. Um, powerful counsel, wouldn't you say? And it's 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 counsel that is possible to follow with the help of the Holy Spirit who wrote these words. Please don't take the road that says, oh, Peter had it in for women. Some have said that not only about Peter, but the Apostle Paul. And that's really a, that's a road without pavement. It's a very difficult place to go because where do you end? You either believe everything in this book is intended for life and godliness and counsel to have fullness, like Jesus said, I came to give life and give it abundantly, or, or where do you draw the line? It's all 
call from God. Um, not easy to hear in a difficult, stretching, challenging marriage. Uh, <clears throat> the stuff of quietness and inner beauty. The things that we just read in verses 2 and, and 4 here. From the woman, unfading beauty, actually, of a gentle and quiet spirit. And I had us think about how God views that when I said it's precious in his sight. I always think of holding a baby for the first time. My three. There's a moment that we have me holding our babies, and I wasn't aware that I was being, you know, picture was being taken or a film but I it was just a precious moment that's the word we're being dis, that's being described uh, of, of how God views such spirit filled response in a difficult marriage um, these holy women were told verse 5 and verse 6 Sarah they had a they had a beauty secret, didn't they? Um, they lovingly submitted to their husband's headship. Those are words that are really filled with vinegar today. They're onerous in our world. Some of it deserved, much of it not. Um, Those are words that says it twice. Lovingly submit. And it finds great favor with God. What could possibly get in the way of a woman wanting to be used greatly by God in their marriage? I think it's at the end of verse 6. Um, why else would he say? Do what is right and don't give way to what wells up inside when you hear stuff like that. Do it. I, I have to look up at the top of the page and finish this message with these words that describe Jesus. He was in a very bad spot, not of his own making at all. But in verse 21, 20 actually, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, I'm not talking, remember, we made it clear. We're not talking violent. We're not talking unsafe. But if you, Jesus had both of those things happen. Look at verse 21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. I've had a whole bunch of women use the word, that's a difficult marriage to stay in. And we have to walk through it together. But um, he committed no sin, verse 22. No deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. I'll repeat myself. If you're 
you're in a hard marriage, tough marriage. Um, you're not sure whether it's in the category of dangerous and risky and unsafe. But don't try to guess. Call me, and I'll, I'll, I'll find the resource to help you. Um, but in the spirit of Deborah, Jael, Sarah, and other godly women of old who did great things for God, the path may not be easy. In fact, often is very hard. But God will work. Let's bow together. And talk to the God who's the fortress anybody needs when their circumstances are fearful. You're the mighty fortress, God. I thank you that you have words that are relevant and kind and connect deeply with women. This room and those watching and joining today want are filled with women that want to walk with you and be used greatly by you. That may be like a famous missionary or do something amazing out in faraway places, but it also may be, Lord, that you had this message in mind for somebody hearing these words that's in a hard day-to-day life. Thank you for Sarah and her example. And God, that's a hard thing to do today, but it's not impossible. I pray that you would empower women and, and men in tough spots to walk with you, the mighty fortress, And to, to walk in such a way that it's said of us, they overcame the fear and it was commendable in the eyes of God. That has to work out well for us. So receive our worship now as we respond to you in song, telling you what we believe and need from you, that mighty fortress. In the name of Jesus, we pray.